There in uh, Luke chapter 16, we read the account of the rich man and Lazarus. This is one of those places, some people argue back and forth uh, about this as to whether or not it's a parable. Myself personally, I don't really see where it makes a whole lot of difference one way or the other. Uh, there are some uh, aspects of it that certainly look like a parable, even though Jesus doesn't explicitly say that it is. But regardless, Jesus presented this in order to teach people. That was its purpose. Uh, in this particular case, I think it was uh, particularly uh, pointed at the Pharisees, verse 14 there in uh, Luke chapter 16. says, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things, and they derided him. So in, in my opinion, at least, it's pointed directly at the, uh, the Pharisees, but the lessons are, are still relevant today. And what I would like to do uh, this morning, and again, uh, Lord willing, uh, this afternoon, is go through this account in Luke chapter 16 and look at some of the lessons that we can learn from it. Now, first of all, it begins, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those uh, from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And I'm uh, reading from the New King James uh, Version. First thing... Uh, and to me, this, this is a really important one, is when, when you read through this account, is there anything stated for which this rich man is condemned? Is there any evil deed that he has done that is pointed out and it says, this is why you have been condemned? There's nothing there. There is nothing there that's pointed out, no, no evil deed, no bad thing that this man did as a reason for why he's condemned. And this is something that you find a lot. If you go back over to Luke chapter 12 uh, and you read the, uh, uh, the parable of the rich fool, you have a, a, a rich man there who is blessed 
he's blessed to the point that he has to tear down his barns in order to store all the things that he's got and he's condemned but it doesn't say that he did anything really bad so you you have this idea that it's not just for really bad things uh, Matthew chapter 25 where we have this scene of the judgment uh, Matthew 25 31 when the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him then he will sit on the throne of his glory all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left and then he says to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But when, you, when he talks to those on his left hand, he tells them to depart. That they are going into everlasting punishment. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 41. Why? Why are they condemned? They will also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to them, or assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. One of the problems that we oftentimes have, it's an idea that people uh, seem to have, even though there's not a, a lot of justification for it, people think that as long as you don't do something really bad, you get to go to heaven. As long as you profess a belief in God, as long as you claim to believe in, in Jesus the Christ, and you don't do bad things, you get to go to heaven. That is not so. And like I said, you look in Matthew chapter 25, is there any bad thing that these people are condemned for? No, there's not. Luke, in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 12, is there anything that the rich fool did that he's condemned for? No, there's not. Look at the rich man here in Luke chapter 16. Is there any bad thing that he did that he's condemned for? No, there isn't. The point I'm making is, is it's not just if you do bad things but it's also if you don't do good things. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about sins of commission and sins of omission. They're both sin. You can actively do wrong things, that's a sin. You can fail to do right things that God has told us to do, and that's a sin. Even though you didn't actively do anything wrong, you did not do what, what was right. And that's the point that you have here. There's nothing uh, obvious. There's nothing explicitly stated that this man did that was wrong. But still, he's condemned. One of the things that we as Christians have to realize is that we are here for a purpose. And part of that purpose is to do good. You know, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, we're told that we're not saved by works. For by grace have you been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And, and that's one of the, uh, the, the, the kind of 
problem points that we have with some of the denominational people is because they claim that baptism is a work and Paul says you're not saved by works. Well, you've got different kinds of works and that was one of the issues that Martin Luther had with the book of James. Because in, in, in James, James says that you are saved by works and not by faith only. And so Martin Luther thought you ought to just rip the book of James out of the Bible because it didn't agree with what Martin Luther thought. What he didn't take into account is there are different kinds of works. You have works of merit, and that's what Paul is talking about there in Ephesians chapter 2. In other words, you go out and do enough good deeds like a Boy Scout that God gives you the salvation merit badge. You know, God, I've done all these good things, so you owe me my salvation, give me my merit badge, so I can put it on my uniform and, and brag to everybody about how good I've been. You cannot earn your way into heaven. There are not enough good things in, in this life that you can do. You will not live long enough to do enough good things to earn your way into heaven. But there are also works of obedience. God tells us to do some things, and we must do those things. And again, in Ephesians chapter 2, he goes on and says that we are his workmanship created for good works. Good works are commanded. We must do them. We don't have an option in this case. But we have to do good things. It's not just a matter of avoiding doing bad things. And again, when you think about the rich fool in, in, in Luke 12, you know, he was not rich toward God. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells us how one is rich toward God by taking care of those that are less fortunate. When he's talking to the people on his right hand, he talks about the things they did. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick or in prison and you came to visit me. These are the things you did and this is why you're blessed. And they said, well, when did we ever do that to you, Lord? We never saw you in that condition. He said, when you do it to somebody else, one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And, and conversely, when he's talking to those on his left hand, he says, you didn't do any of those things. You had the opportunity, you had the resources to do it, and you didn't do it. Therefore, you're condemned. Now, it, it's one of those things, you, in the, uh, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, that's the attitude of the, uh, the priest and the Levite. Now, everybody knows the story. You have a man who's traveling. Uh, he's taken by thieves. They beat him. They rob him. They leave him on the side of the road half dead. And here comes a priest going down the same road. He looks. I don't know the guy. He's not a family member or a friend of mine. I didn't do anything to put him in this position, so I have no responsibility to take care of him. And he just goes on his way. The Levite comes by, does exactly the same thing. I don't know this guy. He's not related to me. I didn't do anything to cause his problem, so I have no responsibility to him. And he goes on his way. And then comes the Samaritan. Jesus uses these, these people and the positions that they're in on purpose. He's making a point. Because who are the religious elite in that area 
at that time, the priests and the Levites, the Pharisees, these were the religious elite. If you were to talk about people in a, a religious context, these were the best. And he says they didn't do what they should have done. But now a Samaritan? The Jews absolutely despised Samaritans. You know, you look in John chapter 4 when Jesus is talking to that Samaritan woman at the well, and he asks her for a drink. And what's her response? Why do you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? Most Jews would have died of thirst before they would have taken water from a Samaritan. You know, those people are, are untouchables. They're, they're, they're contaminated. They're mixed breeds. They're mongrels. We're not going to have anything to do with them. But Jesus was a Jew, and he said, give me a drink of water. It surprised her. And that's why Jesus uses the, the Samaritan in that parable in Luke chapter 10, because they are a despised people. And he says, this Samaritan sees him. He takes care of him. He renders first aid. He puts him up on his own animal. Instead of riding, this man is going to walk and let the injured man ride his animal. He takes him to an inn. He takes care of the man. And then when he's leaving, he tells the innkeeper, he says, here's money. Take this. Take care of the man. And when I come back, if you spent more than this, let me know and I'll pay that too. Jesus is, is really... He's really making a point that, look, this is a despised person, a member of a despised race, and he's better than you are. That's the point he was making. He is, has compassion on people. He's taking care of someone when he can do it. So he's better than you are. You're a Jew. He's a Samaritan, but he's still better than you are. That was the point he was making. We have an obligation to take care of people who cannot care for themselves. You know, in, in spite of the fact that many years ago, uh, our president said that they were going to declare a war on poverty, the latest statistics that I saw said that, well, they haven't done very good. We still have poverty. We're always going to have poverty. Jesus said, the poor you have with you always. It's one of those things we cannot avoid. But we have an obligation as Christians to take care of people if we can. James chapter 1, verse 27, James says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And when he talks about visiting the orphans and the widows, he's not talking about paying a social call. He's talking about taking care of them. You have an obligation to take care of them. I heard somebody once a long time ago say, opportunity plus ability equals responsibility. If you have the ability to help one and you have the opportunity to help one, then you're responsible to do it. Now, one of the things is, is that we can't help everybody. We don't have the resources, we don't have the time, we don't have the ability. But there are some people we can help, and the fact that we can't help everybody does not excuse us from helping somebody. There are things that we can do. Over in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 17, John said, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need 
and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? If you see your brother or sister in need and you shut your heart up from them, you say, how, how can the love of God live in a heart like that? And of course, the obvious answer is it can't. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's kind of the same idea that, that uh, James had when he was talking about some people say, you know, uh, I have faith, you have works. And James says, well, show me your faith without works. Can't be done. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. It has to, it has to manifest itself in action. If you're saying it, but you're not doing it, you don't really believe it. It's not really there. It's easy to say, you know, depart, be warmed and filled without doing anything for them. We have an obligation to do things for people if we can. Over in First uh, John chapter 4 and verse 20, he says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And if you love your brother, aren't you going to help him if they have a problem? Of course you will. You know, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus was asked a question. What is the greatest commandment? Now, this is one of those things that the Jews used to argue about and still do. If you, if you talk to Orthodox Jews, they still have these kind of discussions. They still haven't figured this out. But they would argue about what was the greatest commandment. And sometimes it, it was kind of like it was, uh, you know, I, I have to do this one because it's the great one, but I don't have to do that one because it's not. And of course, it doesn't matter if one of them might be a little greater than the other. You still have to do them both. But they would argue that point. And somebody asked Jesus the question, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's number one. And linked to it is, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it, it's interesting that he puts those two together. He says, this is the first commandment and the second one. They didn't ask him what the second commandment was. They just asked him what's the greatest one. And he gave them two. And the reason is, is because you can't separate those two. It cannot be done. Because if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, if you're not willing to help people who have a need, then as John said, the love of God doesn't abide in you. You can't love God if you don't love people who were made in the image of God. And loving people uh, is, is one of, when you think about agape love, what he's talking about, and that's the way love is oftentimes used in the New Testament, it's a love of the will. You wish for someone the highest possible good, and you work to bring that good about when you can. And you can do that for people you don't even like. You know, Jesus said, love your enemies. 
Now that's hard. That is really, really hard. Nobody ever said being a Christian was easy because if they did, they didn't know what they were talking about. Some facets of Christianity are extremely hard to do. Loving your enemies is one of them. Now, I don't know about you, maybe I'm the only one, but if somebody does something bad to me, I cannot help but feel that it would do my heart good if I saw something bad happen to them. You know, somebody's riding your bumper and then all of a sudden they blow past you on the road and you can't help but think, oh, I hope there's a trooper up there. I hope he's got the radar gun out and he's going to give them a ticket the likes of which you have never seen before. You can't do it. You can't do it. You wish for them the highest possible good. I hope something is going to happen to teach those people that what they're doing is dangerous. They might hurt somebody else. And I hope they find that out and they stop before it happens. I don't want anything bad to happen to them. I don't want anything bad to happen to anybody else. That's the attitude we're supposed to have. And it, it, it's gonna take one of, you know, it'll take your whole life and you'll never have that one down pat. But you gotta work at it. Love your neighbor. Wish for them the highest possible good. And in that parable, when uh, Jesus is explaining to this person who was testing him about who your neighbor was, he asked him at the, at the conclusion of the parable, he said, which one of those was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? He said, the one that showed mercy on him. He said, go and do likewise. Now you know, anybody who has a need is your neighbor. Help them if you can. And in the case of the rich man and Lazarus, you have a man who had plenty. He didn't do anything bad as far as we know, as far as is recorded, he didn't do anything to Lazarus to put Lazarus in the position in which he was, but he didn't do anything to help him either. Lazarus didn't ask for anything extra. He, did, he wasn't going to take anything away from this rich man. All he wanted was what the rich man didn't need anyway. It was crumbs that fell from his table. He said, that's all I want. And he wouldn't even get that. He had an opportunity. He had the ability. He didn't take advantage of it. That's why he was condemned. Not because he did something explicitly bad, but he didn't do the right thing when he could have. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that's important to note when you're talking about helping people there are guidelines. And this is one of those things that people, I think, uh, forget about sometimes. In, th in this country, we have a bad habit of wanting to throw money at things. You know, if, if, if we have a, uh, an issue, throw money at it. Uh, you know, money's a whole lot cheaper than my time is. I, I used to tell people time's never been worth my money, or money has never been worth my time. I'd much rather have time off than get the money that I could have had. <laughs> but a lot of the time, <clears throat> we want to throw money at something. I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to be inconvenienced. So I'm going to throw money at the problem. You take the money and you, you take care of it. I don't want to. Well, we can't do that. And sometimes what happens is in order to make ourselves feel good about something, we'll give money to something when we don't really need to because it makes us feel good. Is it doing anything worthwhile? No, it's not. 
So we need to be a little bit more careful about that kind of thing. And uh, it, it's one of those things you find all through Scripture as well. When, when Paul, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, is talking about uh, the collection for the poor saints in Judea, one of the points that he makes, verse 13, he says, I, I, I don't mean that you be burdened and others eased. In other words, I don't want you to give to the point that you're going to be in need yourselves. That's not the point of this exercise. We want an equality. You have some excess, you give it to them to help them out. But I don't mean that you be burdened and others eased. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 12, you work so you can walk properly to, uh, toward those that are outside and so that you'll lack nothing. You don't give your necessities to somebody else. You know, sometimes you'll hear these people, I don't, I don't remember what group they're part of, but occasionally on the news you'll hear something about a, uh, a religious couple who has a child and they refuse to get the child medical treatment that they need because they say, well, we've already promised this money to God so we can't use it for doctors. And there's usually a court thing that, that takes place and the courts will take the child and say, well, you're going to give them medical treatment anyway. You know, yes, you have your religious beliefs, but in this case, it could cause, a lot, cause the life of a child. So we're going to step in. God doesn't do that to you. You do not find yourself in a position where doing what God wants you to do is going to cause the life of one of your children. You know, you don't hold the money back like that. There, there is a hierarchy here you need to, to watch out for. But he says we shouldn't have a lack. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, when Paul's talking about widows, these are, are, are widows who are going to be supported by the church. Verse 3, honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. And he goes on, if anyone, verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He says, you take in widows who have no other recourse. He says the church shouldn't be charged. Verse 16, if any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. Don't throw the money away on things that don't need to be taken care of because if you do, when you have something that does need to be taken care of, you won't have the money to do it, is the point that he's making. So make sure that it's money well spent before you spend it. Don't let that be an excuse to say, well, we're not gonna spend anything but just research it, look at it, and say, is this really a need? Do they really need it? If they do, take care of the need. We have an obligation to do that. God requires that of us. But many people think that just because we don't do anything bad, we're still gonna go to heaven. And that is not the case. Secondly, one of the things that's, that's interesting to me about this whole account is look at what this rich man does. What's his first concern? Father Abraham, send Lazarus over here so he can dip his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm tormented in this flame. His first concern was with himself. 
I want some relief. And what did Abraham tell him? Can't happen. Verse 25, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Your fate is sealed at death. Whatever you're going to do, you need to do it now. Because the time comes when you won't be able to do it. There's a song, it's What, what Will I Leave Behind? And, uh, you know, I, I think that that is a kind of a good exercise to think, if I were to die today, what am I going to leave? Have I done the things that I needed to do? Have I spoken to the people I need to speak to? Have I told my family how I feel about them? Have I taken care of things? Am I going to leave things in a mess? Am I going to leave friends or relatives behind that I, I, I've not talked to and, and tried to convince to become a Christian? You know, there's another song that says, you never mentioned him to me. You know, are, are, you, are you going to like it if somebody stands up in the judgment condemned and then looks at you and says, you know, you had all kinds of opportunities to tell me about this and you never did it. That's not going to excuse them, but it's not going to look good for us either. But there, there is a, a, a line drawn at death. Everything that you want to do, everything that you need to do, everything that you must do has got to be done before you reach that line. Because once you do, it's over. There is nothing else to do. You know, the Catholic Church came up with this... Uh, doctrine of purgatory and essentially what purgatory is they look at like this uh, account of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16 where you have uh, I think of it as a holding area uh, when you die you go to this place it's divided into two sections one is is Abraham's bosom the other one is torment and that's where you stay until the judgment at the judgment you go and final sentence is passed some people say, well, why is it called judgment if the people are not being judged? Well, they are, but they're being judged in the sense of sentences being passed. Where you're going to go is already set. That was set the moment you died. But God is passing judgment on you then. But in, in the, the Catholic tradition, they think that in, in purgatory, you're going to be tormented for a certain amount of time. And once you have been punished enough to make up for the sins you committed, then you get to go to heaven. So they think they get a second chance. There are some other denominational groups that think the same thing. You know, after you die, then you're going to get preached to again, and then you have another opportunity to obey or not. And I keep thinking about that. Who, if they've already died and they're in torment, if somebody came and preached to them again and said, you can leave this place, who wouldn't do it? Who wouldn't repent? Everybody would. There wouldn't be anybody in hell. They'd all go to heaven. Not backed up by scripture. At death, your fate is sealed. 
there is no punishment until you, you've, you've finally burned away all of your sins and you get to go to heaven. There's no second chance. There's no more preaching to you. It's set. At death, your fate is sealed. And that's what the, the rich man and Lazarus tells us. Fate is sealed at death. Our time is up for this morning. It may be that there's someone here that needs to be obedient to the gospel of Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, God, through his grace and mercy, has given you another opportunity to obey the gospel. You could come forward this morning confessing your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, and you could be baptized to have your sins washed away. If you're an erring child of God, then you need to go to God in prayer. Confess the sin to him from a repentant heart and ask him to forgive you, and he's promised to do that. Or it may be that you just need to come forward and ask for the prayers of those that are gathered here for some other reason. Whatever your need is, we ask that you come forward and make it known while together we stand and sing.